I'm sure you'll have all heard the, the name D.L. Moody, famous preacher of many years ago. He was preaching in Chicago. I think it was a Sabbath evening. Exhorted men and women, young people, to seek the Lord. Laid before them the issues of the soul, and I believe his subject was eternity. Whatever it was, he had led the matter before his congregation. I said, I want you to go home and think seriously about what you've heard. And you come back next Sunday night. Let me know what you have decided about your own soul. Coming out of the meeting that night, as they looked out across the city of Chicago, they could see smoke in the sky. And I'm sure, again, you're all familiar with the reports, that great fire that swept through that city. Don't know how it started, but houses, you probably, I would imagine houses in those days were really all built of wood. And so the, the whole city was, well, it was just a disaster waiting to happen. Fire broke out, it spread. I understand it, it covered an area of something like eight and a half square kilometers. Home after home was destroyed. Flames engulfed house after house. The, the damage was estimated, now we're talking here, 1871. The damage was estimated at $222 million. That's a lot of money back then. It's reckoned by today's standards that's somewhere in the region of $4.7 billion. Catastrophic. Of course, whenever it was realized what had happened, I mean, 300 lives sadly were lost in that fire. 100,000 people were left homeless. And, of course, Moody realized that the mistake he had made in exhorting people to think about their salvation for another week and come back the following week. I don't think he ever preached like that again. Scripture reminds us today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. We would never exhort anybody to think any longer than now. Scripture says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. I know it's not what a day may bring forth. How true that is. Anyway, that, that fire devastated that place and it took something like two years to rebuild. Seventeen and a half thousand buildings were destroyed. In Chicago, there was a lawyer the name of Spafford. And uh, he had invested heavily in business the downtown area, but like a whole lot of others, he lost just about everything. If that wasn't enough, he had only just a year earlier lost his own son. I don't know the circumstances, but, you know, you don't expect your children to go before you. And here's a dear man, and with all that he had, he wasn't a stranger to grief, sorrow of soul. Lost his son, now he lost his business. Nevertheless, he spent the next two years assisting, doing what he could to recover and help to, to get that city back together, help people get homes rebuilt, the impoverished, the grief-stricken, and so on. He's a man who also had four daughters. 
By the end of those two years, he felt that he and his family should take a holiday. And he decided to come to England. At that stage, then, Moody was overdoing meetings in England. He and uh, Ira Sankey, who was great into music, and they were conducting evangelistic crusades and planned to move from England over to Europe. And anyway, Horatio Spafford decided he would come over for this holiday. But just as they were sort of packed and ready to go, he was suddenly delayed. Some business matter, some commitment had arisen in Chicago. And so he sent his family on ahead, his wife and the four girls. He waved them off and arranged to meet them on the other side of the Atlantic. But their ship, the Ville de Harve, never made it. Somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland, their vessel collided with an English sailing ship and within 20 minutes had sunk. This dear man's wife was one of only 47 survivors. She was picked up clinging to a piece of floating wreckage. And that dear man's four daughters all perished or drowned. He received a telegram sometime later from his wife with just two words on it, saved alone. You can't begin to imagine what that must have been like. As soon as he could, he boarded ship and made his way across to join his wife in England. But it was on board as he was coming across and the ship passed the area where that other collision had occurred. He took out a pen and he began to note he began to pen the words that we've just sung. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it as well, as well with my soul. That's easy said, isn't that? What must that have been like for that dear man? We've all been, I'm sure, impacted by tragedy of one kind or another at some stage in life, whether it's from illness, infirmity, death, or any of a thousand other things, things, things that can touch us as humans, whether it's the pain of a broken body, a broken heart, a broken spirit. Tragedy has touched us all. And whether pain is natural or spiritual. We've all been affected. But in those circumstances, the Lord Jesus has said, well, in the world ye shall have tribulation. But, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16, Job knew all about tragedy. And he is to be commended. I mean, you think of the plight that he had to come through. In Job 14, 1, he says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. How true that is. What we must remember is that the Lord Jesus is more than adequate to take care of whatever the situation. The rest of that verse in John 16 says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. That's something we shouldn't forget. 
Now here in Mark 5, we're confronted with a father who is experiencing tragedy. That day, death showed up unannounced at the home of Jairus and took his 12-year-old daughter. His heart's broken. But in the midst of his tragedy, he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. He discovered Jesus was more than enough in such circumstances. Isn't it sad that when people are in trouble in the world, all too often they'll turn to drink or something like that? And what does that do? It only makes the situation worse. It only adds sorrow to their sorrows. But they can't see any other way out. I was reading the other day of the son of Michael Douglas. You know Michael Douglas is a a famous (coughs) film star in Hollywood. And his son, the son's now 40 years of age. And he's only just now getting over his drug habit. From his teenage years, he was into drugs and drink. And if it wasn't drink, it was drugs. If it wasn't drink, drugs, it was alcohol. And he's been trying everything, looking for something. There's a vacuum, you see, in, a, in every man's life. And I believe the Lord has created man with a vacuum that only the Lord himself can fill. If only the Douglases could see that. If only this world could see that. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, let's have a look at this man, this Jairus. Uh, notice in his situation, uh, there's something here that I think would encourage everybody to seek the Lord. Notice here, there's a pitiful dialogue. Verse 22, you have the accomplishments of Jairus. He's described as a ruler of the synagogue. So he, he's a man of prominence, of position, of prestige, a man of privileges, of prosperity, a man of power, in his community, one who you might say had it all. But at this point in time, none of it mattered. Now I know some, some of you are going off to Israel tomorrow. You may have opportunity. I'm very thankful I had the opportunity to visit what's left of the synagogue where this man labored. Now understand his house was next door to the synagogue. And when you're there, well, it'll bring this all back to you. Just because a man is in public office, it doesn't exempt him from tragedy. When Jairus spoke, people would have listened. He was held in high esteem. They recognized him as a man of authority, but now he finds himself in a place where none of those things matter. His authority, his position, whatever whatever he had, it it meant nothing to him. He's just lost his daughter. The intruders of sickness and death couldn't care less who or what he is. Suddenly in the midst of life, he's brought face to face with death. Just now, position or possessions mean nothing. Here's a man, oh yes, he had religion. But his religion was powerless to help him through this difficulty. You may be sure that he would have traded anything he had just to be able to change his circumstances. But he couldn't lift a finger to do a thing about it. He had everything 
He thought he would ever need. But when the crunch came, none of it was any use to him. Is this somebody here this evening? Business going well for you? Doing all right as far as work and family are concerned? But if death were to enter your home, what would happen? You find comfort in possessions? Jairus. Say he lived next door to the synagogue. You know, you could live in the church and still end up in hell. Scripture says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what a man may have, what he may have accumulated or what uh, titles he may have to his name or anything else. When it comes to death, there's only one thing that matters. Where is the soul? Are we ready to meet the Lord? Here's a man suddenly brought to realize where his real treasure in life is. And death is threatening to come and take it away from him. He calls her my little daughter, verse 23. In Luke's account of this incident, we're told that she's his only daughter. She's 12 year old. You don't expect your children to go before you. Sure you don't. Monday of last week, I had a young niece, well, young lady, she's 42, she's sitting at the table in the kitchen, working on her laptop. She had a responsible position, a company in Lisburn, had a couple of days in the office and a couple of days at home. It was bank holiday Monday, her husband was off for the day. And she was sitting there at the table and suddenly took this awful headache. Pounding, burning headache. Ran upstairs, put her head under a cold shower to try and get ease. And took a massive seizure. No help was called. Ambulance personnel were on the scene very promptly. But she didn't survive it. 42, taken out into God's eternity. Broken-hearted mother and father. It's my sister's eldest girl. You don't expect these things. Sure you don't. Leaves two, a husband and two young boys, 10 and 12-year-old. I'm glad to know she's with the Lord this evening. But you don't expect these things to happen. One who, was, who had never known a day's sickness, full of health, Lovely young individual, very gracious manner, very efficient, very organized. I'm glad she was ready. And here's a man, and, and death comes so suddenly, so uninvited. You know, some people spend their entire lives amassing power and wealth, and yet when, when tragedy comes, these things mean nothing. Death doesn't care if you're, if you're a millionaire or a pauper. Sickness and sorrow don't care if you have power or position or popularity. It means nothing. Beloved, let it be said, all hell couldn't care less who or what you are or what you have done. When tragedy comes calling, you need something greater than yourself to lean on. 
You need help. You need to know where to go for that help. And when it comes, well, life suddenly comes into clear focus. You can't buy health and strength. You can't buy life. No matter what you might have, can't buy a place in heaven. No, but you can have it for free. Of course, before you can have a place in heaven, you have to want it badly enough to be prepared to finish with sin. And some people say, hold on, I'm not a sinner. Well, with respect, beloved, this book says, all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. It doesn't matter what we think. Whatever we long for, whatever we crave after, these things suddenly will cease to matter when death comes. Jairus knew where to go. He ran to the Lord Jesus. Where do you go when trouble comes? Notice the attitude of Jairus, verse 22, when he saw him, that is Jesus, he fell at his feet. Somewhere this man had heard about the Savior. And interestingly, the name Jairus means one whom God enlightens. Somehow God had opened this man's eyes and he saw that Jesus' ear was his only hope. And now at this very moment, as his daughter is dying... The Lord Jesus just happened to be passing by in the district. You think that's a coincidence? No way. This was all in the divine plan. It allowed their two paths to cross. Jesus was passing by. Just as he is passing through Guildford this evening. No coincidence that we're here. Now notice how this man of position and power came before Christ. Reverently, prayerfully, passionately, he fell at his feet. And the word fell there comes from a Greek word that means to descend from a high place to a lower one. Jairus was humbled in the presence of the Lord of glory. Beloved, if one doesn't know Christ, then you need to do the same thing. Can't come to Christ boasting our own worth, can we? We're nothing but guilty sinners in his sight. And this, this is a truth we have to recognize. We will never be saved. We can't boast all our good deeds, no matter how commendable they may be. Now, I've been at funeral services. Somebody will sing the praises of that dear lady. Oh, she gave flowers to the church, you know, once a month. And she did this and she did that and did the other thing means nothing. What did she do with Christ? That's what matters. Notice the acknowledgement of Jairus here. Verse 23, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands upon her. Well, parents are concerned for their children, aren't they? And especially if children are not saved. That is, if parents are saved and their children aren't and the children are in danger of dying? Does it not bring home to us that the responsibility that parents have to make sure they train their children and do their best to lead them to Christ and live the right life before them so that those children are encouraged to, to press on and grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord? 
There's a lot of carelessness amongst parents in this world today. There are homes in this district, I'm sure, and parents are literally rearing children for hell if the Lord doesn't step in. Nobody can save himself. Religiosity will not save. Religion can take people to hell. It's only Christ can save. Pitiful dialogue. But notice here also there's a this was a painful day. See the interest of the Savior, verse twenty-four. Jesus went with him. When when Jairus shared his story, the Lord Jesus lent a sympathetic ear. Well, he's a sympathizing Savior, isn't he? It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's interested and started immediately for Jairus' house. You know, some celebrities in this world are totally unapproachable. They, they, just because they've made a name for themselves and they, they have their millions that they've made in the world, there's nobody can get near them. They, they think they're untouchable. But the Savior's interested in this is a dear man with a need. And, the, you know, the Lord just loves to hear about people's needs. It's unfortunate when people try to sort out their own needs and don't bring the Lord into the situation. But he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. 1 Peter 5 and 7. He's always more willing to bless than many are to be blessed. People treat the Lord with contempt. It's, it's most discourteous. The hymn writer recognized this when he said, I, I, I was sinking deep in sin, sinking to rise no more. But he says, love lifted me. The Savior loved him and he recognized that. There's the intrusion of sickness here, verses 25 to 34. Now, th this is another difficulty that arose, as if Jairus hadn't enough going against him. This difficulty arose. I mean, the Savior has just uh, come off that little ship down at the, the seashore there at Galilee. And, and he's made his way up the road. He's coming towards that synagogue. It's not that far from the, from the, the shore of Galilee up to this house, up to the synagogue. But on the way, the, the, this woman comes on the scene who's been suffering for 12 years. In her dilemma, here's a, a, hers is a pitiful condition indeed. And she came in the crowd that was following the Savior along the road. And Well, when she touched the Savior's garments, she was miraculously healed. And the Savior took time to stop and, and communicate with her. This is all taking up time. And Jairus is, I mean, there was urgency in his coming to seek the Savior in the first place. And now the Savior, they all had a crowd around the Lord. And this woman comes, and of course the disciples say, what are you talking about? Sure, everybody's all around you. How do you know somebody touched you? But he knew. And this woman knew. But the Savior stopped everything. He took time for that individual. And of course she was wonderfully 
gloriously changed. Every second, however, as far as Jairus is concerned, was crucial. His wee girl's dying. Surely there's no time for any of this delay. Yet, there's no mention that he, that he made any complaint. He didn't say anything at this time. As far as his family is concerned, this was a race against time. But he didn't interrupt the Savior, but he waited till the Lord was free to continue. Now, this is the response of faith. Here's a man who, he knows he can't help himself. He's in a desperate situation. And the child of God could learn from this. He's prepared to wait on the Lord's time. Can we not all, I mean, we want our prayers answered yesterday. Here's a man willing to wait. In, in spite of his dilemma, you might say he was maybe bordering on panic. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. I, I, let's get up the road here. My daughter's dying. And there's this interruption. There's the invasion of sorrow, verse 35. While he yet spake, there comes one, uh, the ruler from the synagogue's house, with the sad news, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? During that time of delay, this little girl has passed away. How does Jairus feel now? Was his world not falling apart? Did he not feel that the Lord had let him down? Were his dreams not shattered? I mean, I'm sure that wee girl was the apple of her daddy's eye. His only child, 12-year-old. You get them to that stage, you think you have them reared. Oh, if it hadn't been for the crowd, she might still be alive. I wonder... Is the crowd keeping somebody from coming to Christ? Maybe somebody will say, well, I'm glad I have the crowd. It gives me an excuse for not coming to Christ. That's dangerous ground. You know, many a one has missed heaven because of the crowd. They've gone with the crowd to the things of the world and suddenly they've been cut off in their sin and you know what they'll spend eternity in hell cursing the crowd why did I ever listen to those friends but it'll be too late to do anything about it oh the crowd could laugh you into hell and not laugh you out of it beloved What will the Lord have to do? We wonder sometimes, what will he have to do to get some people to come to himself? What will will it take to to get that dear one to finish with sin? After all, it was the thought of losing his daughter that brought this man Jairus to the feet of the Savior. What will it take to get you to come? Notice thirdly here, there's a powerful deliverance. Verses 36 to 43. Here's a, a, a tragic situation that transformed itself into an impossible one. The little one is no longer sick. She's dead. 
Has the Lord let Jairus down? If this happened to be you, would, would you refuse to have anything more to do with the Lord? Had Jairus' faith failed him? Can you imagine the scenes of pandemonium back at the house? This man, Jairus, had left the house to, to go down the road to seek the Savior as a matter of urgency. As far as those in the house are concerned, he hasn't come back and now the child's dead. What's going on? The Lord has let us all down. Jesus has failed. Ah, oh, never. Never. He can't fail. He's God. He mightn't do everything the way we want, when we want, or how we want. But he can't fail. There's an exclamation of faith here. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Only believe. But believe what? The child's dead, isn't she? In effect, Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't believe all you hear. They've been told she's dead. Verses 38 and 39 indicate that as they, they approached the house, the family and neighbors had, had gathered, and they're there weeping and wailing because of the death of the child. That's understandable. But Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't even believe what you think you know. Wait till you get the whole truth of the matter. And in verse 40, they laughed at him. Laughed him to scorn. He said, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Don't believe what, what you think you're saying. Just believe me. Trust me. Now, it always pays to give heed to what the Lord says, doesn't it? I don't know how many times I've heard people try to convince us of how good they are. I suppose, in a sense, they're really trying to convince themselves. But it's not oneself a person has to convince. It's the Lord. But he, he is... The Lord's not convinced by any man's self-recommendation. What the Lord wants to hear is how unworthy that soul is of the least of God's mercies. If any man will be... It will ever be anything before God. He'll have to begin by recognizing he's nothing. What are we? Just dust and ashes. The best any one of us could ever hope to be is just a sinner saved only by grace. Yes, it's a humbling thought. God has no room for pride. The Lord hateth a proud look. Oh, the devil will tell you you don't need to be saved. Look at the good life you live. I commend people for the good life they live. Some unconverted people could nearly show Christians how to live. But good living never gets anybody to heaven. There's a lot of good living people in a lost eternity tonight. It's true God will not send anybody to hell. Your sin will do that. We're already on the way there. God doesn't have to send anybody to hell. It's sin that takes us there. He has done all he can to get us to, to lift us off that road. But if the sinner refuses to be saved, then he, he volunteers for hell. And when he lands, he can't blame God. God has provided a way of escape. 
He's given the best that heaven could afford. Christ has shed his life's blood to provide cleansing for sin. And the world doesn't want it. It's easy to blame God when things go wrong, isn't it? It's not the Lord's fault that people perish. He's done everything to provide salvation. Satan will tell others they, they, they don't need they could never keep God's salvation if they did get saved. So there's no point in them being that's true, none of us can keep it. The Lord does the keeping. Some will say, well, you know, my faith just wouldn't be stronger. It doesn't matter how strong or how weak one's faith is. It all depends on the one in whom your faith is placed. And the weakest individual can say, Lord, if Jesus died for sinners, I'm a sinner, then he died for me. I trust him to be my saviour. That's it. The Lord will save you. Ask anybody who is saved. If they, do, if, they, if they keep themselves or does the Lord do the keeping? You know what they'll say. Don't spend your time looking for excuses not to be saved. Come to Christ and be saved. Let him do the saving and the keeping. And you notice here the exclusions of faith. Verses 37 to 40. Jesus put everyone out of the house who didn't believe. Now don't miss this. Those who lacked faith were removed. Those who didn't believe that the Lord Jesus could raise this child were put out. No room for unbelief. And beloved, as far as heaven is concerned, all who refuse to believe that Jesus saves, they'll not be in heaven. Faith believes the incredible. Faith sees the invisible. Faith receives the impossible. Believes the unbelievable. But unbelief receives nothing from the hand of God. Jesus said, without faith, it's impossible to please him. You have the exhibition of faith here. Jesus came into that room where the young girl was, took her by the hand and says, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Death says, I have you. I've got you. Your hope's gone. You're mine now. No hope for you. But Jesus says, Arise, live. And when the giver of life came into that room, death had to flee. Indeed, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What power there is in the spoken word of God. He only had to speak, and death was conquered. And beloved, he only has to say the word. And you could be raised from the deadness of sin that may live. What evidence is there that he can give this life? Verse 42. Straightway the damsel arose and walked. She rose, she walked, she spoke, she was able to eat. Verse 43. The people are astonished with a great astonishment. Verse 42 says. That phrase comes from two words that carry the meaning to throw out of position or to be out of one's mind. Literally, what Jesus did blew their minds. They were filled with amazement. That's the whole thing about God's salvation, isn't it? The Lord can still astonish people by the change he makes when he saves a man or a woman. We've heard testimonies of how God has lifted some poor man out of the gutter of sin when he had drunk the shirt off his back. 
Maybe even drunk his family out of their home, but God changed all that when he saved them. I, Jesus, saves and satisfies. He'll give life. He'll fix the broken life. You've got to let him. A Methodist preacher by the name of Luther Bridgers was born in 1884. He married Sarah Veach, and their marriage was blessed with three lovely sons. Pastor Bridgers accepted an invitation to preach one time in, at a conference in Kentucky, talking about back in 1910. He left his wife and family in the care of his father-in-law and went on that preaching trip. He had two weeks, two weeks of heart-stirring messages, and, and God came down and blessed, and souls were saved in those meetings. God's people were encouraged. And he couldn't wait to get, to get telling his wife, and he rang her. But when he phoned home, oh, he was so excited, but it wasn't his wife who answered the phone. He listened in silence as the news was relayed to him that there'd been a fire in his father-in-law's home, and his wife and his three boys were all dead. He was absolutely distraught. But he learned to lean on the Savior. And at those tearful moments he sat down with a pen. And he wrote these words. I remember he's just learned of the passing. The, the awful tragedy that took his wife and three boys. He wrote. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not. I am with thee, peace be still, in all life's ebb and flow. Feasting on the riches of his grace, resting neath his sheltering wing. Always looking on his smiling face, that is why I shout and sing. Though he sometimes leads through waters deep, trials fall across my way. Though sometimes the path seems rough, and steep see his footprints all the way Jesus Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know fills my every longing keeps me singing as I go wonder could we have sung that in his circumstances it makes an awful difference when you know the saviour when you're trusting in him and you know that your sins have been dealt with you know it is well with your soul you have a home in heaven and you know that when dear ones are taken from you whether by tragic means or otherwise you know the parting is just for a little while you meet them in the morning thank God for the hope of the gospel how many as we said, turn to alcohol or nicotine or something or drugs whenever a crisis arises, only to make things worse. But oh, to turn to the Savior and cast our burden upon Him. And there's no there's no substitute, you know, for the peace of God passes all understanding.
Oh, to be able to to be able to lay everything on him and know that he'll take care of everything. It's a great thing to be able to put your head on the pillow at night and know that if you don't open your eyes again in this life, you'll open them in glory. It's a wonderful thing to be saved and know you're saved. Do you know it this evening, beloved? If you're not saved... I have only one question. Why not? Because Christ has done everything. He's been to the cross. He's given his very life. People, I'm sure you know many who would put their dependence for eternity upon the good life that they live. But if, a good, if living a good life could prepare us for heaven, then there was absolutely no need for Christ Jesus to come into this world to die on a cross. If we could make it under our own steam, then we don't need a saviour. But that's the whole thing. We'll never make it under our own steam. There's nobody will stick his chest out in heaven and say, well, I got here because I did such and such. It'll not happen. We'll only be there because of him who died in our place. He became sin for us. The one who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's all about Christ. He's the answer to the soul's great need. He's our only hope for heaven. And anyone who's not saved can only be saved through him. Simple faith. Lord, I'm the sinner that you died to save. Will you save me? Doesn't he say in his word, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gift of God is eternal life. This is not strange that so many refuse it, don't want it. People don't realize what they're doing by rejecting it. When you pray that the Lord will give grace and give you that grace to finish with sin. Lay hold upon him. The only one who can save, the one who to know is life eternal.